Hello and welcome to the Free Mind Podcast with Seth and Nervoretti. This is Stephen Robles, and for this installment in our God and Government series, special guest Dr. Carol Swain joins us on this week's episode. Dr. Carol Swain is an award-winning political scientist and the former professor of political science and professor at law at Vanderbilt University. She's very active on social media and is a commentator on television, news, and we are so honored to have her on the Free Mind Podcast. Before we jump to the interview, we'd like to remind you about our sponsor, Impact360. Impact360.org has incredible resources for you and your students. If you'd like to learn more about apologetics, defending your faith, and how to stand firm in a biblical worldview, we encourage you to check out their online courses. They have courses on defending the resurrection, what is truth, and understanding worldview. You can get $25 off those courses if you use the promo code FREEMIND. And don't forget to check out their gap year program. If you have a rising senior this year that would be going off to college next year in 2021, we encourage you to check out their nine-month gap year program where you can send your students and they receive apologetics training, how to defend their faith, and how to engage with culture so they're prepared when they go off to university. You can get the application fee waived with the promo code FREEMIND. Learn all about Impact 360 at impact360.org. And now here's our interview with Dr. Carol Swain. Welcome to the Fremont Podcast, and, and thank you for tuning in. This is our God and Government series. Seth and I are humbled and honored to introduce our guest today. Um, we've been following her for some time, and she's become one of our heroes. Her story, her journey is so impactful, and I'm excited for her to share with you guys today. Dr. Carol Swain is the host of the podcast, Be the People, an author and editor of nine books, one of which um, Black Faces, Black Interests has won three national awards. Another of her books, The New White Nationalism in America, was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. She is also the host of Two Minutes to Think About It, heard on Vought Radio and other Christian radio stations. She's the former university professor of political science and law at Princeton and Vanderbilt Universities. Um, she's appeared on uh, Fox News, ABC, CNN, BBC, NPR, and among other uh, international outlets. Dr. Swain was a national mayoral candidate candidate, sorry, in 2018 and 2019. Her opinion pieces have been published in the likes of the New York Times, USA Today, CNN Online, and on and on. Dr. Carroll, thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be on your show. Thank you. Well, yeah, today, we're, 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 this is, man, this is truly yeah, awesome. Yeah, we're, we're I, thank you. I, you know, these days, we, we say the uh, black conservatives are like the rock and roll artists uh, back in the day, standing up <laughs> for many people, take it, taking the heat and, um, you yeah. know, just front line. So, you know, I, what I really want to cover to start off with today is just, can you tell our listeners a little bit about your background? You have a really interesting story that uh, we're just learned about this week, in fact. So, I don't know, maybe, maybe start with just... <laughs> You grew up, I think, 11 brothers and sisters yeah. in Virginia. Can you tell us just a little bit about what that was? Well, I was born and raised in southwestern Virginia in a little community uh, named Chamlisburg. And it was the kind of uh, place that if you were driving along the highway and you blinked, you could pass through it because hmm. it probably was not more than a mile or two. It did not have a city center. We lived uh, off the highway in uh, the country, deep country. And for about the, I would say the early part of my life, 
about nine people lived in a two-room shack without any indoor plumbing, and we had to carry our water from a spring. The level of poverty I experienced was such that if it snowed deep in the winter, we stayed home. The children stayed home until the snow melted because we did not have snow uh, shoes, and we didn't did not have proper clothing. And back in those days, you know, you had to walk to the bus stop, which was along the highway, and stand and wait for the bus. And as you can imagine, the bus was always late. And I remember one year that um, I missed, um, along with my siblings, 80 of 180 school days. And the whole, all of us failed that year. Wow. So I dropped out of school after uh, completing the eighth grade. I married at 16, had my first child at 17, and by the time I was 21, I had three small children. People came into my life, uh, and my life changed. I got a high school equivalency. I went to a community college and got the first of five degrees and, uh, and never had a plan of becoming a professor, but people came into my life. They steered me, and I became, you know, a university professor that didn't just squeak by. I was noted. I got a signing bonus. I was a hot shot in my day. Awesome. Wow, that's amazing. And, you know, when you mentioned that, I'm thinking about my wife, too. She grew up in Southside Chicago, and there's a couple people in, in her life that came in at just the right time and encouraged right. her and got her to Fisk University in Nashville. Um, but, what you know, if you don't mind me asking, what did those people that came into your life say or do that yeah. encouraged you to go back and finish and, and kind of, you know, in, in essence, like shoot for the stars? Well, there are a lot of things that were going on. As a child, I always knew that I was different. And mm. I would even say today that I, I fall into the category of misfits. But I know the kingdom of God is full of misfits, so I'm in good company. Mm. And um, so I did not fit in easily with my siblings. And I felt like I spent my childhood as a participant observer, that I would be watching my family. And I thought they were so strange. And my mother said I'd hide in a corner or I would hide behind furniture and I would peer out. She didn't like my ugly ways. And my ugly ways was I hid behind furniture. (laughs) 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 And I would peep out at people. Um, But that, you know, like I didn't, I felt very alien in my own family. But I also felt a sense of urgency. I always felt that there was something I was supposed to do, and I had this unresolved tension. But because of circumstances, I married early and I started raising my kids. I got involved with Jehovah's Witnesses, and I was just, and I became increasingly depressed. And mm. in, in late teens, um, okay. uh, early 20s, I would just take bottles of pills. And uh, usually call someone, get rescued. But I probably should have died from those pills because I can remember taking like bottles of aspirins and uh, vomiting up, you know, which I'm sure uh, was blood. It was black. Um, But during one of those times, uh, my medical doctor uh, told me that I was intelligent. I was attractive. I could do more with my life. And I was shocked he was this young uh, white intern and later resident. But I had forgotten that when I was in school that I was really smart. 
and uh, no one had ever told me that I was attractive. And so that was kind of shocking. And that conversation with him uh, was the catalyst for me to get my high school equivalency. And I saw my what would have been my high school class graduating and people that I knew were not as smart as I was. They were getting their degrees and I was so embarrassed. Each time I had a child, I had to list the highest education completed. So one time I put down, you know, ninth, which was a lie because I only completed the eighth at that point. And then I think for the next child, I put down 10th. But I was just so embarrassed that I had not finished uh, high school. But the conversation with the doctor led me to finish high school. And around that same time, and this was 1975, I took a job outside the home and I worked a number of jobs. I worked in a garment factory. I sold things from door to door. I sold smoke detectors. And back then they cost like $700, at least wow. the company that I was selling for, sold them for that. And I was able wow. to sell the first one of the sales group. And I was only black and the only woman. And so I felt really proud of myself when I sold the first <laughs> $700 smoke detector. That's not bad. And we sold it by um, showing people a video of what could happen to your family if you didn't have a smoke detector. And so there's all these burnt bodies and things. And um, you really scared people, including myself. Um, you, you knew you had to have a smoke detector. Um, but so I was in the job market. Most of my time in the job market was in nursing homes, working as a nurse's aide. And while I was in one of those nursing homes, I met an African orderly from Sierra Leone. And he told me, hey, I go to college with a lot of people who are not as smart as you are. You ought to go to college. And so he planted that seed. Mm. I checked and I learned that I could go to college with, with a community, with a GED. Uh, and so that's how I got started. And so the doctor changed my life by reminding me that there was a time when I was smart and that I could do more with my life. And then with the African orderly, uh, he told me I ought to go to college and that set me on a path. But my whole life has been steer people coming into my life and steering me. I was not a devout Christian believer then. I've always been spiritual, but I would not say that I was uh, a devout believer, but I've always known that there was a spirit world I've always felt special. I've always felt set aside. And so when I started studying psychology in college, I was very worried because I thought, I must have that condition where you have delusions of grandeur. <laughs> I like that. Delusions of I like grandeur. That. That's fun. I love it. Awesome. So you said you grew up always feeling a little bit alienated in your family. Have you ever felt, did you ever feel alienated because you were African-American? Oh, no, no. I'm just saying that people like me, they can be white, black, yeah. Asian, but there's some of us that are just different. Sure. And I've always been different. And I love it. And I just, I, part of the difference for me, I think, is that I can see things. Mm -hmm. And, um, I think as a spiritual sense, I think that I may have a prophetic gifting, but I also think that um, for some reason I can sort of see trends or I see things coming and it, it enabled me with my research to have sort of an edge on other people because I can take a lot of information and put it together mm. and I see a picture in the way that they don't. So, um, 
it's just a, a way, way, it is a way I was wired. And when it comes mm-hmm. to my race, I would argue that my race has advantaged me more than it, it could have disadvantaged me because I, mean, I grew up in the segregated South. Uh, I was born in 1954. That was the year of the Brand v. Board of Education uh, Supreme Court case that desegregated schools across America, but they said in all deliberate speed. So that meant that it was 1968 or 1969 before Virginia integrated. So I spent my early part of my life in segregated schools where I, where I received an excellent education mm. from those teachers. And I had heard from them that when we integrated, when we went to the white school, that we would be behind. And I knew I was smart at the black school, but I didn't know that I would be as smart at the white school. <laughs> so my uh, self-confidence, even though I dropped out of school, it was built by the fact that, yeah, I, I was smart. And, uh, and I realized that I was, white people were not smarter than I was. You know, that when I was competing, I was always competing uh, with them. And as far as my race, I, I watched on television the civil rights movement because out in the country, you have to watch it on TV. Nothing <laughs> is happening in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, but I saw opportunities open up for people like me. And I was able to get an equal opportunity, you know, to apply to college and colleges and universities and to be admitted. But I always wanted to prove that myself. And I didn't want anyone to say that my accomplishments were because of affirmative action. Now, I realize people say it that and could say it anyway, that they can say whatever they want. But uh, I was a, I was an honest student because I wanted to be an honest student, that I put in the time to make A's uh, and graduated magna cum, laude, magna cum laude from my four-year college, Roanoke College in Salem, Virginia, which is predominantly white. I graduated with, with the, the honors while working 40 hours a week, nights and weekends at the community college library, hmm. where when I had to, I could bring my children. Wow. Yeah, I was, I was struck wow. by just, you know, like you said, the doctor just gave a kind word like that at the right okay. at the right time and how, you know, we're sitting here talking to you now and just all that's connected to that, just a reminder how much, how important it is to speak life to people that, you know, and, and just plant those seeds, man. That's, wow. I had never heard that story before. So you get to college and you go, I, f- I forget where you get your, did your, uh, master's and PhD. Well, I can tell you about my degrees. And I yeah. can also tell you about three years ago, I got up enough courage to attract down that doctor hmm. and oh. reintroduce myself. Oh, how wow. and, he, and he was 25 when I was 20. And he remembered our conversations. Hmm. And um, he said he always wondered what happened to me, but he was not on the internet. He's, he's like, 68 or well maybe he's older than that now because I'm 66 and he's five years older but um he said he always wondered what happened to me and he was not on the internet and he was not watching tv he never saw me and I don't know if he would have recognized me but uh, I've been to his home and met his wife and reacquainted uh, myself with him 
and he's become a part of my life. And his wife told me just how excited he was the day I called. And uh, and then I've shared this with other doctors. And I had one female doctor tear up because she said, I wonder if I ever changed anyone's life. Mm. Wow. Amazing. And so you, you you actually came to know the Lord, you said, during college, right? And no, late in life. Oh, later in life. Professor. I was always spiritual. And my degrees, uh, I have a two-year degree from Virginia Western Community College in business. I wanted to do art. I had won awards uh, um, as a, as a ch- student, as a child. And I have art talent. I was told to be practical. And I've always mm-hmm. been a person that I look to people that I thought were wiser. I've always looked mm. to older people. I've always mentored well. So when they tell me to be practical, I did business. And my first degree is in business merchandising. My second degree is in criminal justice from Ronald College. And with, um, I thought that I was going to be a store manager uh, with the degree from the community college. I applied for jobs. I was told that I needed a four-year degree. I don't really believe that I needed a four-year degree for to manage a store at the mall, but mm. that's what they told me. It kept me in school. And to choose my major for the four-year college, I knew from filling out job applications that I needed something to put on those applications, that there were places for awards and honors and accolades, and I had nothing mm. other than I had made the dean's list a couple of times. And so I made a conscious decision that I was going to be an honor student. I was working in the library. So I checked out and I purchased books on how to make A's in college, how to take essay exams, how to take objective tests. I applied those principles and um, was able to graduate magna cum laude. And while I was at Bruno College, as a senior, I initiated a scholarship for minority students that is endowed at Ronald College. It's called the Constance J. Hamler Scholarship, named after one of my professors at the uh, community college. And so that was, uh, but criminal justice I chose because I knew I was good at anything that didn't have a lot of math. (laughs) (laughs) And so it was a very strategic choice. And I can tell you that um, I always struggled with math and I took my math and sciences as a senior And I ended up uh, earning an A in one math class. And how I did that was when I got that first exam back and I made a D, I didn't make an F or something like that. And I can remember I was probably in my mid-20s crying with that paper in my hand. I dropped the class. The professor let me stay uh, in the class and attended. And I took all the exams. And so I actually stayed in in that class, took the exams, and then I took it the next semester for credit. And I had worked through so many problems that when I took the final exam, I felt like I was having an out-of-body experience Hmm. because it was like I was on automatic pilot. So that was the only A I made in math in college and probably the only one I would ever make. Amazing. And from there, I went to Virginia Tech thinking that I would become a public, um, I'd work for the government. And I had decided I didn't want to become a lawyer or anything like that. I would work for the government. And while I was at Virginia Tech, my professors discovered me. And there was also the recession of the 1980s. Even though I was an honor student, I was well known in my city. 
I could not get the jobs that I applied for. So I applied to graduate school, got into a PhD program, uh, started giving conference papers around the country so that when I was graduating, I was known across the country. Mm. And I did not have my Christian conversion experience until I was in my 40s. But I've always been spiritual. And even back when I was at Virginia Western Community College and I was a young adult, I had strangers come up to me at least three times to say, you know, you're going to be famous someday. (laughs) And, you know, there was nothing I was doing at the time that any of that made sense. Wow. So inspirational. And I love, I think you said this on another interview I saw as well, but part of your thing was you would find people that were really good at what you were wanting to do and you would basically do whatever they told you to. Yeah, yeah, we were talking about that, just how important that is to find good people and kind of nestle under them and learn from them. Well, so you, you become a born again Christian. I think, were you at Vanderbilt as the professor at that time? No, I was in the process of leaving Princeton. I had accepted, um, I mean, my spiritual journey started, I mean, I've been on the journey all of my life and my personality is I was always a seeker Mm. and, um, and I knew that there was a spiritual world and I was drawn towards things like Edgar Cayce, you know, out of body experience and, um, now, I would, as a Christian, I would jokingly say that I was drawn to the dark side. But I read literature like that, and, and so I was very spiritual. But after I had my, earned my tenure at Princeton, it's just like I was so disillusioned. I had worked mm. so hard. And I just nonstop to get my education. I had won all those prizes and I was so empty inside. I was so, I mean, just so empty. And, um, but that journey continued with me studying Eastern religions, uh, you know, new agey kind of stuff. At that time in the 90s, there was the angel explosion. You all may be too young to remember this, but it was, uh, you know, Find your angel, sit down, have coffee with your angel, chat chat with your angel, um, <laughs> all of this stuff about angels. And, um, and you know, I believed clearly that there was the this, this spiritual world, mm. uh, but there was just a series of events. And late, um, I think it was 1997 when I had an experience, and that was a year before I accepted the job at Vanderbilt, but it put me on the Christian path was that I was in a medical hospital. Uh, I was in a hospital for a medical condition and it was like my life played in front of me and I thought I was dying. And, um, and it, it was like, I had a narrator showing me different points in my life, asking me to choose. And I chose Christ, but I was sure that I was dying as an unsaved person. Hmm. And that um, hospital, which was in Princeton had a, black Pentecostal apostolic chaplain, which is really, really strange. That's not a community where you get black Pentecostal apostolic. Sure. And there was a black cleaning lady who threw a book in my bed and she said, all you need is Jesus. And I still had the book that she threw in my bed. Mm. And that year I was hospitalized like three or four times. That um, chaplain arranged for me to get baptized at a little inner city church in Trenton. 
after that first uh, hospitalization. And um, I'm not, I didn't know what I was doing really. I mean, I knew I was getting baptized, but I can't say that I knew Christ. I just said the sinner's prayer and stuff like that. And all I remember was an inner city church. I got baptized in February in um, a metal tub of ice water, as I recall. And uh, went to that church for about three months, made the decision to attend one of the evening services. And I just was, uh, I mean, I, w- I walked in there and it's very clear that in the morning, the Pentecostals have a different service for people that may not understand their ways. <laughs> when I came in, in the evening, they were dancing and shouting and loud and all of the things that uh, they do when they let their hair down. And it just terrified me. And then the pastor was walking through the aisles and he whispered in my ear, God's going to use you in amazing ways. And at that point I got out of there and um, I went back years later just to visit them, but that was too much for me. But I left in 1997. I would say that I had had this, um, I was that I was at that point spiritually, but I was not a Christian practicing. I was blending New Age Christianity, Eastern concepts. I had my own religion, you know, the Swain religion, <laughs> and it was a blend of all of that. And when mm. Vanderbilt hired me, I was very concerned about being in the Bible Belt. They hired me in 1998. I came in 1999. I came in 2000. But between the time they hired me and when I actually showed up, I had become a devout Christian believer, and I made the decision to get rebaptized because while I was in New Haven, I went back to school. I got a fifth degree from from Yale, and so I have a degree from uh, the Roanoke College, Virginia Tech, University of North Carolina, PhD, and then I went back and got a master's in law from Yale. And it was at Yale in New Haven where I became a devout believer. I understood the Christian message and the gospel. And I knew my life was not about me, that my life was bigger than me and was meant to be shared. Mm. And God removed my fear of public speaking. And so I came to Nashville in 2000 as a new believer. And the longer I stayed in uh, Nashville as a new believer in the church, I became more and more conservative. And so... That's the Carol Swain story. Uh, so <laughs> the, powerful. The real question is, when are they making the movie? Yes. <laughs> you, um, you, can, you, can ima- you can't imagine. Well, I'm, I can tell you that I've skipped over lots of parts, uh, right. supernatural experiences and things that most people would be afraid to share. But I believe that God has given me a story for a reason. And he removed a lifelong fear of public of, of speaking, just mm. talking, of the fear Wow. Because there have been times um, as a child, I would literally forget how to speak. And then as a professor, I had to write out everything I was going to say. And if I was going to introduce someone, I had to have that paper in my hand and that paper would be shaking. I'd be clutching the lectrum and instantly the Lord removed that. And I was able to you know, go on national TV and have the life that I have today. Ooh. I would never have been able to have that life if I was fear-bound the way I used to be. Powerful. So he said, as you continued to attend church in Nashville, you became more conservative. Can you tell us about that process and how that came yeah, to were you Yeah, were you conservative politically before that, or was that a, just yeah, an increase? Well, I or? think all of my life I've had a 
good common sense. And so even uh, as a Democrat and as a professor, one of the reasons my research was considered good is that I was very grounded. I could just put together things. Hmm. And so as far as um, progressives, there were things, you know, that I so clearly my first book won national prizes and it's been cited by the Supreme Court. And I was a Democrat when I wrote it. And th- at that time, people attacked me. Some of them, especially in the black community, they said that I was a conservative and that I had sold out black people because of the book argued political party was more important than the race of the representative and that as long as Blacks held the views they did, they'd best be represented by Democrats. Consequently, <laughs> it didn't make sense to create majority Black districts. That was controversial back then. Mm. And so at that time, I was being attacked, and I had nothing to fall back on because I had superficial relationships with my colleagues, but I was not in a church. Mm. I was not a religious person. And I was being called all sorts of names. I was being called a sellout and a conservative. And back then, that was like being called a name, a bad name. Mm -hmm. I had no support network for that. And so in that sense, I was conservative. But as I grew in my Christian faith, the biblical values and principles that I were, were learning did not line up with the platform of the Democratic Party. So my first reaction was um, my decision was to become an independent. But I call myself an independent, but I was not voting for Democrats. I was voting for Republicans. And it took a while for me to work my way to the point that I became a Republican. And um, and I wear the um, label of Black conservative as a badge of honor. But if you were to ask me about my group identity, my first identity is with Christ. Come on. And then my second identity would be conservatism. And then race would probably be, uh, you know, third if I must choose. But my primary identity is in Christ. And I believe that a lot of the race problems we have in America, we would not have those problems if we, uh, as Christian believers, understood, uh, you know, the new life and the identity in Christ. It's not in our skin color, our race, our occupation, our gender orientation, those things. Yeah, and speaking of the race problems, you know, the, and the fact that you said you you have this ability to see things and kind of ahead of time, you know, many people have recognized in the past even few weeks that uh, BLM, the Black Lives Matter movement, is really, in essence, a Marxist movement. But I think you saw, you were one of the first ones to see that way back in 2016, even kind of gotten some hot water for it. Can you tell, how did you, how did you see that back then? What was going on? You know, what's interesting, started? I think, is that um, during uh, the, I left Vanderbilt University in 2017. I took early retirement, but probably five or six years before I left, I started realizing the importance of critical race theory and communism and how it was impacting our society. So I started teaching a course that looked at the impact of communist thought on American political society. So I was already um, attuned you know, mm-hmm. to Marxist rhetoric and critical theory. Uh, with Black Lives Matter, I believe I was the first uh, person, certainly on national TV, that called it for 
called it what it was. Mm. And in the course of preparing for a CNN interview where I was going to debate a woman named Mariva Martin, I just went to that website to do some research. And when I looked at that website, I felt like I was just reading planks from the communist agenda because mm. it had very little to do with blacks. And it was pushing, you know, of course, the LGBT agenda. To, uh, two of the three women who founded the organization are queer. And they now tell us that they're trained Marxists. Mm. And when, when, when they say trained Marxists, you really have to uh, hang out there with that statement. What is a trained Marxist? <laughs> like, it's not someone just read a book about Marxism. I mean, anyone can read uh, books about Marxism, and uh, lots of people read uh, Karl Marx's works, but they're not trained Marxists. Trained Marxists would be someone that's actually gone uh, and studied and practiced how to take those concepts and use it to change the society or overthrow a government. They've gone to some type of training camp. They are trained Marxists. They're not just people that were casual readers. But for me, uh, in 2016, after the Dallas police officers were slain mm -hmm. on national TV, I said that they were Black Lives Matter, that they were a destructive force in our society, and um, that they were Marxists. And that um, led to... Uh, you know, my university got very upset and sent out a statement, and so did the blacks on campus. And up until that point, I had only offended uh, the Muslims and the LGBT community. And uh, when I said that on CNN, I unified the campus. Wow. <laughs> wow. wow, that's crazy. man! And, you know, that is that just is what we are. I think when you stand and take a stand for truth these days, you're just going to pay the price. And I know elsewhere you have actually said that BLM actually uses black people. Oh, yes. It, it I plays mean, I, on their pain. I believe progressives hate blacks. And I know hate is a strong expression. But when I look at what progressivism has done to the black community, I don't see anything but hate. I just look at uh, how the abortion agenda has been pushed on blacks mm. and that it's okay with with progressives if we have cities and towns where there are more black babies being aborted than are being born and how they would take certain black people and they will put them in charge. Like the current um, president of Planned Parenthood is a highly educated black woman uh, who has been a social justice warrior. She's pushing their agenda. And that goes back to Margaret Sanger that she uh, talked openly about co-opting black pastors. And she even gave Dr. Martin Luther King, a junior, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, uh, an award. And so they have always used blacks. And this whole thing about defunding the police, or right, you defund the police and remove them from the inner cities, who's going to die? Black people, because they're more likely to be victims as well as perpetrators. And uh, the quality of their lives diminish. When you shut down public schools using COVID as an excuse, uh, who's going to suffer? It's going to be the inner city people. They're the ones that are getting a poor education anyway. The left has not been able to educate them, and so now they shut down their schools. When you tell people that COVID is more likely to kill your population, that you're vulnerable, that the, drug, the uh, disease is racist, it's going after people of color, 
but it's okay for you to go out and and protest and mm-hmm. be in in mass groups. That's okay if you really believe that more people are dying and that you're supposed to social distance. Well, why would you tell black folk to go out in uh, in mass protests mm. uh, when you have uh, the white leaders of Black Lives Matter out there uh, attacking, encouraging the attacks on police and the political left pushing a narrative that causes young black people to hate police and want to kill the police. I mean, what, why would you do that if you didn't hate black people? Because you know that if they continue doing what they're doing now, we are going to have a race war where black people would lose. And people like me and, uh, and, uh, and, other people that on the we we out there we're on the sidelines we're preaching peace and unity. Uh, we may lose our lives in the battle because if it's a battle between black and white, the people that are killing are not going to say, "Oh, well, you okay?" But you're not. Ooh. Okay. Wow. And so, did you have something? Yeah, it's just really difficult um, hearing all that you just said so eloquently about uh, the political left or progressivism, just really um, their tactics. Because but they, they use really, deception. They, they use they deception, do. infiltration, and manipulation. And mm. you see all that in uh, Saul Alinsky's Rules for Radicals. Mm-hmm. And so, black people are being manipulated, but so are whites, and, and, and in particularly the church. Um, the church uh, is a land, the secular humanists in, uh, that are Marxists to give them advice on race relations. When they have the Bible, they should be leading the way. They're not leading the way. They are following, and they are following um, those that call themselves diversity, equity, inclusion, mm. trainers, and spokespersons, and pastors that are steeped in liberation th- theology which is all Marxism. And as a consequence, our country is going down. Mm. Mm. Could you, could you speak to the church, like specifically the white church, what would you tell them to do in this moment, this cultural moment we're in with regard to that issue? They need to dust off the Bibles and go back to all the scriptures on race. And uh, it's all there. And when it comes to black people in that congregation that may have grievances and they want to blame white people for slavery and things that happened, you know, generations ago, then they need to remind them what Jesus said about forgiveness. And I think that um, everything that we need to be racially reconciled with one another, it's all in the Bible. And we know that from one man, God made all nations of men and women. We know that God is no respecter of persons. We know that God has said, uh, by our love, that's how the world will know us. If we actually uh, practice the love of Christ, it transcends race and ethnicity and all of those other things that divide us. And so the church has given up its authority by following the world. Mm. That's good. That's good. We're going to blast that out because I think you're so right. We've got to, you know, Dr. Vody Bauckham says, especially with this movement that's going on, we have to expose and oppose it, get back to the scripture. And and you even called, (laughs) which I I think is true and I love it. You know, you've said in many cases, white folks in the church are being cowardly and it's time to rise up and and take some courage and stop letting fear and and this white guilt that Shelby still talks about drive us to do things that are untrue and unbiblical. Um, You wrote a book, I think in the early 2000s called The New White Nationalism. Um, 
can you tell us what, what is the major message of that book? What did you learn? What did you hope to convey through that book? That was a book written by a uh, new Christian. <laughs> okay. That was my first piece of scholarship uh, after I had my Christian conversion experience where I really knew what it meant to be a Christian. And I had been working on a different book on affirmative action when whites and blacks agree. And around that time, there was some high profile hate crimes that took place where people just went out and killed or maimed people of a different race, just out of racial hatred. And I became fascinated with the fact, uh, just uh, uh, I became fascinated with the question of why would someone hate another person of a different race to the point they'd want to kill them? And then I thought the only way to get the answers would be to interview these people. And then I looked at my hands and I said, well, I can't interview these people. (laughs) I have to find someone else who can interview these people. And so at that time, when I first started my study, I hadn't left Princeton, but I, um, so it was late 1990s, uh, late, yeah, I guess late 1990s, uh, I hired a Princeton preceptor who had a PhD, elderly uh, white man, he's middle-aged then, and He was my research assistant, and I identified 10 uh, white leaders from least extreme to most extreme. And so least extreme, I would say, would be the Jared Taylor of the New Century Foundation, American Renaissance, uh, Yale-educated, London School of Economics graduate, uh, least extreme. Uh, And then um, William Pierce, who wrote the Turner Diaries, would have been most uh, uh, extreme. Uh, He started a hate group called the National Alliance. Uh, I picked 10 people that were interviewed um, at least once. And in some cases, there may have been a a couple of conversations with those individuals. But I also drew on survey data and other people's research to do that study. And what I saw was that there were some issues that, um, uh, that created grievances that I felt that if we did not address them adequately, that we were going to have unprecedented levels of racial turmoil and racial conflict. Mm -hmm. And so that book, The New White Nationalism in America, It's Challenged Integration, was meant to be a wake-up call. Uh, I felt like if we were ever going to have racial reconciliation, for one thing, we have to listen to everyone, and that there are some legitimate grievances that I believe white people have and that, um, and they, these are policy areas where they felt that they were being discriminated against and that um, not enough was being done when it came to crime, protecting them from uh, black crime and uh, the immigration issue. And these were not just white issues. These were American issues where the politicians had neglected um, uh, their leadership responsibilities to address these issues. And they were affecting the quality of life for many Americans. I saw that there was an opening for people who were very extreme to take those issues and to politicize them in such a way that um, we would end up in the situation where we are today. And, And probably the most important thing that I saw in the book was that identity politics and multiculturalism that came from the political left provided a great justification for white people to organize the way other groups had organized. 
because you can't say that Blacks and Hispanics and Asians have an identity and they have a culture that should be celebrated, but no, not you white people. Uh, There's something wrong with that. And the uh, Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Equal Protection Clause, I mean, clearly the Constitution protects whites as well as other minorities, but there were lots of grievances with white people feeling discriminated against. And the um, agenda of the political left, I felt that if you took it to its logical conclusion, you would end up with white consciousness, white interests, and uh, the same kind of identity politics that you see being played out today, because um, the left has provided the justification for every group to organize and defend their own rights and to protect themselves. And in this moment where you have Black Lives Matter and uh, racist attacks on white people, like the little five-year-old boy that was pulled off his uh, bike and, mm-hmm. and shot uh, and executed by a neighbor, uh, you have a white man that was working in a store and a black man that had watched uh, videos of police abusing people decided he was going to kill someone white. And so he went out and he killed this innocent person. Um, the woman who said that all lives matter, the young mother who was killed because she said that. And I mean, I, that's just three uh, uh, cases. There have been numerous cases of white people being targeted in hate crimes, but we don't call those hate crimes. And as a consequence, there are a lot of grievances out there that, that need to be addressed. In that book, The New White Nationalism, I argued that we needed to move away from racial Uh, identity politics, from identity politics period towards the American national identity. And I felt that the nationalism uh, that we as Americans uh, would have and should have is based on principles and values and a shared history, and that that was the only thing that could hold our nation together. And so in my concluding chapter, Part of it talks about what the nation needs to do as a whole, but the other part talks about what I felt like black, what black people needed to do through their leaders. Uh, when I looked at the issue, I felt like this is not just a white issue, that uh, black people also have a responsibility and that if we're going to have racial integration and racial reconciliation, then each side has to take responsibility. Wow. That's an incredible breakdown. And, and I hear it's like a 500 and something page book. So we'll have to well, get that Well, I thought that was going to be my last academic book. Because <laughs> when, I, when I got saved, I thought the Lord was calling me into the ministry. Mm. And that uh, as soon as I finished that book, I misheard him. Mm. As soon as I finished the book that he was going to pull me out of academia, I was going to become the next Joyce Myers. And I was going to be traveling around the world. And I was going to be speaking to these huge crowds and and I had it all worked out in my imagination. It didn't work out that way. <laughs> Man, that's a whole other interview right there. Well, you know, the way it's been positioned this day, these days, I wanted to kind of wrap it up toward this topic. But I know you're, you're actually part of the group um, that I believe it's called the Nas- National Advisory Board of Black Voices for Trump, which is interesting, especially in light of that book, because he's been cashed out as, right. as a as kind of the canonical face of white nationalism and the way you just described it to me, he sounds like the opposite because he's trying to, to identify people as Americans, but they keep doing the identity politics thing to him. There there are a couple of things I think we should talk about as we wrap up is I'm also part of 1776 unite, 
Mm. That was started by Bob Woodson in reaction to the New York Times 1619 project. Okay. And the 1619 project, which has put curriculum in over 3,500 schools across America, is based on a false narrative about America's founding and says the country is, uh, you know, guilty of systemic racism. And uh, it's very divisive and it's very Marxist based on critical uh, race theory. And um, we, at, with the 1776 Unites, we are very focused on telling the true uh, history of America as a country that was not perfect, but it's one where whites and blacks have always worked together. There were always the abolitionists and there were many whites that gave their lives uh, uh, to end uh, slavery and to bring about uh, better conditions for blacks. And that you think about the period of blacks when they were freed from slavery, uh, the Rosenwald schools that were established across the South, all the historically black colleges were set up by white people. And the, the sacrifices and the generosity and the philanthropy of white people, that's not something that uh, the people uh, uh, cite when they talk about America being systemically racist, America mm. was never great. America was a great country that got rid of slavery. Not only did it get rid of slavery, it has always made adjustments and tried to be a good uh, country. Uh, we've made mistakes, but we've always improved ourselves. And when it comes to this present moment and people who say, well, Donald Trump is a racist and uh, all white people are racist, well, critical race theory says that racism is permanent that whiteness is property so that every white person has this valuable property. And the only way they can make themselves right is they have to divest themselves of this valuable property in whiteness and they have to become anti-racist mm. and having a mixed marriage, don't that doesn't make you anti-racist. To be anti-racist, you got to go out and I guess join Antifa or Black Lives <laughs> Matter and take your marching orders from them. And then you're anti-racist, except uh, you are, as long as you're white, you can never be good enough. And that is totally contrary to the scripture. Yes. Uh, we know that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our past, present, and future sins. We're not responsible for the sins of our ancestors. And racism is a sin, and it's a sin that whites and blacks can be guilty of. And so it's just critical theory nonsense to argue that only white people can be racist, that people of color can't be racist. That's nonsense. Yeah, and, and you made me think. You know, one of one of the other tenets of critical race theory is that racism doesn't go away, but it changes forms. And I think, you know, if you were to make that case, I think the best chance you'd probably have actually is with the Democratic Party being the party of slavery, the party of Jim Crow. And now, as you say, they've wedded themselves with progressivism and BLM, which which tends to be racist in itself. It's like it's well, changed forms. Well, here's what forms. they've done: they created the KKK, and they created Antifa and Black Lives Matter. And the KKK was the terrorist arm against blacks. And right now they're using Antifa and Black Lives Matter to terrorize whites and anyone else that gets in their way. So mm. the more things change, the more they stay the same. Hey. <laughs> um, yes, and, and just, what would you say then to, you know, young black millennials that they've, you know, they watch CNN or they catch the splashings off of the fake news. And so they just assume, man, Trump's racist and people that vote for him are racist. 
and we're, we got to do everything we can to oppose him and this white nationalism. What would you say to them in this? Well, moment? first of all, they need to look around because there are lots of black people now that are awake, that are woke to <laughs> what the Democratic Party has been doing. And they're supporting Trump or they're supporting conservatism. And so they're not uh, on board with everything that they see or hear on CNN if they watch CNN. And I can tell you that if you have four TV screens in front of you and you have MSNBC, you have CNN, you have Fox uh, and ABC, you're just going to be startled by the different messages that each audience uh, uh, each audience gets a different message. And if you're not, you know, flipping through the channels and getting your information from more than one source, you're going to have a very um, narrow view of reality. And I think that um, I would tell young uh, black people to look at the conditions in their community and look at those cities and towns that have been uh, represented by black uh, leaders for generations. They have voted for the Democrat, Democratic Party for generations. Donald Trump, in uh, one term where he had his hands tied by the people that were trying to throw his every move, has done more for blacks than I would say all the previous presidents in my memory. Uh, they need to do their research and they don't need to just parrot what they hear. They need to actually do some research. And if they do research, uh, I think that they will at least uh, be able to see that Donald Trump is not their enemy. The Republican Party is not their enemy. It's not perfect, but it's not their enemy. And the only way that they're going to get responsiveness from the political system is to be able to hold the uh, political parties accountable. You cannot do that if you just blindly support one. Mm. Will you run for office again? I don't think so. I mean, okay. I never felt there was a call on my life. I ran because someone needed to run. And uh, <laughs> and the fact that I didn't win means that uh, God had something else for me, which I believe is what I'm doing now. Mm. I would not be able to uh, do the media or write the things that I write if I were mayor of Nashville. Mm, yeah, that's, so good. that's true. Well, well, had we still been in Nashville, we yeah. lived in Nashville for a number of years. You, you would have been our vote for sure. Yeah. But I Thank think you're you. right. You're making such a difference. And uh, I want to encourage our listeners too that you were in a movie recently called Uncle Tom, oh, put on by Larry really Elder. Good. Really good movie. Um, what What else do you recommend? How do, How do they stay connected with what you're doing? And what's the best way for our listeners to stay connected? Well, I have uh, websites, and I'm not sure when this is going to air, but um, my uh, I have a personal website, carolmswain.com, but my blog posts and podcasts are on bethepeoplenews.com. Instead mm. of we the people, it's bethepeoplenews.com, and I have a 501c3 nonprofit called Be The People Project, and one of the events that we're planning, and we have two, one is a local uh, Franklin, Tennessee showing of the Uncle Tom film. Oh, nice. cast, Some of the cast there. And on October 17th, there will be a national tribute to law enforcement, a conference that, that I put together. Bob Woodson is the keynote speaker. Mm. And um, the first 100 plus law enforcement officers active duty will get a 
$50 gift certificate if they sign up and attend that conference on October 17th, which is a Saturday, from uh, 10 a.m. to noon. And so I would encourage people uh, to, you know, sign up and participate in this tribute to our law enforcement officers across the country. Wow. And it, that show in for Uncle Tom, is that going to be the Franklin Theater, the old yes, theater there? Yes, on Friday, uh, September 25th. It's coming up uh, fast. And then the National Tribute uh, to Law Enforcement, October 17th, is a Saturday. And that's a little ways off. So fun. We've done many a concert yeah. in the Franklin Theater. So yeah. that, that would be fun to, for us to get to go and see that. So that's awesome. Well, thank you so much. But this right. has been a treat. We've learned and uh, been inspired today. So thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed our interview with Dr. Carol Swain. We'd love to hear your feedback. You can comment on our social media. You can follow us at FreeMindFM on Instagram and Twitter and FreeMindPodcastFM on Facebook. Don't forget you can watch these episodes of our God and Government series and our series on critical race theory on YouTube. You can go to our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash freemindpodcast. Subscribe and get notifications there whenever we post a new video. If you'd like to watch this, the link is in show notes and you can share that as well. If you haven't yet, we'd ask you to give us a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts. That'll help us climb the ranks and be discovered by more people looking for Christian apologetic content. Thanks so much for joining us. And we'll catch you next time. You-